Last time we spoke about the amphibious assaults for Operations Chronicle and Toenails. General Douglas MacArthur finally performed his landings at Nassau Bay, Woodlark and Kirwin Islands. Woodlark and Kirwina proved to be cakewalks, while Nassau Bay proved to be a tougher nut to crack. Then over in the Solomons, Admiral Halsey unleashed his landings at Wickham Anchorage, Segi Point, Vero Harbor and Rendova. Now the Japanese were more alert to the invasions and offered some resistance, although ultimately Sasaki would order many of his forces to simply withdraw from the invaders. Admiral Kuzaka tossed a ton of air power at the incoming allies only to lose a disastrous quarter of his air fleet, forcing him to ask his army colleague Imamura for additional support. However, with all of these landings came a large amount of allied warships to bring them. And such actions could only bring one conclusion, another naval battle for the Pacific War. This episode is the Battle of Kula Gulf. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we can begin, I just want to remind you all, this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of kings and generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and so much more, so go give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube, where I'm actually just now unleashing some podcasts over there. They're interviews with fellow YouTubers, historians, and more, such as Cody from Alternate History Hub, Min from Flashpoint History, Brad Sanquois from OTD Military History. If you prefer not to watch the videos, you can actually find the podcasts themselves over on any podcast platform under the Pacific War channel. Also, just a friendly reminder, I now myself have a Patreon account, which can be found at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War channel. And over there, I have exclusive podcasts and more, like early access to my content. Maybe you really want to hear some subject that isn't being covered here or over on my YouTube channel. Go over to my Patreon and ask for it and you will receive. Check it out, it will mean a lot to me. Now before we jump into the naval battle of Kule Gulf, a lot was occurring in New Guinea and the Solomons. Over in the Bob Duby front, the Australian 5th Brigade under the temporary command of Colonel Gwyn were preparing for the main offensive, hoping to trap the Japanese defending Mubo. To support the Nassau Bay landing, Colonel Gwynn ordered the untested 5859th Battalion to advance upon the Japanese high ground position at the Old Vickers, Coconuts, and Babdubi area. They would be marching from Orudubi to the Coconuts while Major Wharf's commandos would raid Malololo and Kela. Company A and C of the 5859th would make the initial attack, seeing Company A attacking Guaybolum and Company C, the Old Vickers position. Following close behind them was Company B, who were to advance across the ridge to gain control over the bench-cut track. Company D were to be held in reserve at the Kundavine. On June the 26th, A Company set off from Misim, heading towards their forming-up point at Namling. On the 28th, the other remaining companies departed Mir's camp, heading for the new Babdubi Kunda Bridge. 
The next day, 17 of Worf's commandos were ambushed by over 30 Japanese. They managed to escape, but were forced to abandon a single brand gun. By the night of June the 29th, the 58th 59th crossed the Francisco River and they began preparations for the launch of the main attack, which would occur the next morning. The next morning saw lackluster Allied airstrikes against Guaybolum, Salamau, Old Vickers and the Coconut Area. Companies B and C left their startup point at Ulap Creek, seeing Company C attack Bogart Village, just a bit south of the Old Vickers position, being held at this time by a company of the 115th Regiment, led by Lieutenant Ogawa Takishi. They successfully outflanked the Japanese, and they captured the village, suffering only two casualties for their efforts. From there, the Australians assaulted the Old Vickers position, but the Japanese defenders repelled them right back to Bogart Village. The Japanese defenders had well-established positions, hiding in dugouts 40 feet down from the top. The failure to seize the old Vickers position prevented B Company from reaching their objective, the bench-cut track, and now they were being met with mortar fire as they crossed the ridge. Meanwhile, A Company began their assault on Orodubi, but anticipating booby traps the men had left on the bench-cut track around 70 yards south of Orodubi, they chose to climb a 40-foot kunai slope to join the main track, just 10 yards within the enemy. Around 80 men of Company 10, led by Lieutenant Gunji Toshio, saw the Australians doing this and promptly began tossing grenades at close range and firing down upon them. The Australians were forced to flee back to Namling as a result. The next day, it was decided they would use a platoon to contain Orodubi while the others simply bypassed it to go onwards and capture Guaybolum and the Eskrin Creek which they managed to do by July the 2nd. While all this was occurring, Company B was trying to find another way across the ridge, but they were failing to do so. So on July the 2nd, they were ordered to move across the ridge via the newly established positions at Guibolum and Eskrin Creek, and they would reach the Comantium Track and Bench Track Junction, where they would prepare an ambush by the 3rd. At around 5 p.m. on the 3rd, B Company managed to ambush a party of 20 Japanese trying to move towards the old Vickers position, and this quickly fell into a hand-to-hand -hand combat situation, killing half the Japanese and one of their officers. Meanwhile, Colonel McKechnie's men were fighting to keep their beachhead alive at Nassau Bay. Companies A and C had fought through the night against the Japanese until their 300-yard perimeter was secured. At dawn on June the 30th, C Company began advancing south to find the Papuan Infantry Battalion who were around Cape Dinga. C Company made their way to a place just due west of Cape Dinga, following the Tabali River, while A Company was patrolling north and south of an arm of the Bitoy River, where they ran into the 3rd Battalion 102nd Regiment. A Company, backed by some other units, attempted to hit the Japanese western flank, but they were quickly overwhelmed and forced to turn back. It would actually be amphibian engineers who would save the day, who came in at the last minute to help A Company out just as the Japanese tossed a bonsai charge at them. Upon receiving word of the Japanese attacks, C Company rushed over to join A Company by 3 p.m. Yet unbeknownst to them, the Japanese were not actually trying to break through. They were simply trying to withdraw by crossing the Tabali River. General Nakano had ordered them to withdraw to a new position at Lake Salas, where they heard word over 1,000 men had landed at Nassau Bay. Nakano had also ordered the 3rd Battalion of the 66th Regiment to send 150 men to march south from Salamaua to help out in the Nassau Bay area. These men were tasked with carrying out only limited actions against the Allied forces around Nassau Bay, 
such as delaying actions to help the Nassau Bay garrison withdraw towards Lake Salas. Nakano was also coordinating with Colonel Ataki, who was operating out of an HQ in Mubo. He had likewise brought forces over to Mubo from Salamawa. As for the Papuan infantry, they were marching north and they ran into the 3rd Battalion 102nd Regiment around Cape Dinga as well. They managed to attack their rear, killing at least 26 Japanese who were holding out in a bunker. After this, they continued their march to the Nassau Bay beachhead. At around 4.30pm, Company C began sending reports that they were seeing some Japanese crossing over the Tabali River just south of their position. They were ordered to return to the beachhead perimeter to take the southern flank, but before they were able to do so, the Japanese attacked their rear, taking five men and a platoon commander. Around the beachhead, a hastily prepared defensive line was established by an ad hoc force of engineers, Australian infantry, and headquarters personnel. It gives you a feeling going back to Guadalcanal and Ensign's Ridge. As the night fell on, Company C reached the southern port of the perimeter, quickly taking up positions. The Japanese began a series of attacks throughout the entire night from all sides using machine guns, grenades, mortar, and rifle fire. Smaller parties of Japanese were trying to infiltrate positions. It was a terrifying experience for the defenders who would dub it Guy Fox Night. Many of the men had itchy fingers, which led to tragic accidental casualties throughout the night. It was a pitch black night, and the noises of the jungle, combined with Japanese screaming stuff in English, unnerved the Allied forces. The Japanese had tossed a ton of stuff into the perimeter trying to get the Allies to use up their own munitions in response. As a result, the Allied forces had 18 deaths and 27 wounded, several of which were the result of friendly fire. The Japanese, it seems, had around 50 deaths during the night. Back over in the north, on June the 30th, Captain Dexter was leading forward a number of patrols in preparation for an assault upon Duali. However, as they advanced, they ran into a Japanese ambush along the Batoy track, thus cancelling their planned assault. The next day, Brigadier Moten ordered Dexter's exhausted men to move forward regardless. With some support of bowfighters strafing the Japanese positions, the Australians charged straight through the enemy positions and, to their shock, they found them abandoned. As Dexter recalled, We advanced through the Japanese position with fixed bayonets and searched the scrub on each side. Everywhere was evidence of a hasty evacuation, dropped equipment and personal rice bags, and evidence of extensive bomb damage, but of the Japs, no sign. Thus, Dexter and his men captured the mouth of the Bitoy River by early afternoon. Shortly after the capture, Dexter made contact with Nakechne, who was busy expanding his perimeter northwards. By nightfall, PT boats led by Lieutenant Commander Barry Atkins covered the landing of 11 landing craft full of reinforcements. The PT boats strafed nearby villages causing a lot of ruckus, hoping to dissuade nearby Japanese from firing on the vulnerable landing craft. The reinforcements were mostly from B Company, who had failed to land during the third wave. On July the 2nd, Moten began to pressure McKechnie, stating that he had to get his troops moving inland at once. Thus, McKechnie decided to leave Company C to defend the perimeter, while Lieutenant Colonel Harold Taylor would lead the rest of the men towards Napier. Luckily for the men, four 75mm pack howitzers and some M1 artillery guns had been unloaded that night with reinforcements giving them ample firepower. The guns were positioned on the beach and immediately went to work shelling targets at the mouth of the Tabali River, Cape Dinga, 
and the area between the Dwali and the Betoy River's southern arm. On July the 3rd, the men, now designated the Taylor Force, accompanied by Dexter's company, were marching for Nepur. But their march was a slow one as the jungles were thick and they were carrying all that heavy equipment. While all this was occurring, the 3rd Battalions of the 102nd and the 66th Regiments were consolidating around Lake Salis, looking to create a defensive position. The coastal area, however, proved to be too difficult to fortify. So they moved over to Tambu, where they joined an SNLF platoon of the 5th Sasebo to make a position there. At this point, General Savage... Actually, I will make a point myself. I know that Devin Nunes over at the Kings and Generals YouTube channel calls him Savage. And he's probably right, that's probably how that name's pronounced. But calling him General Savage makes me happy. It sounds awesome. General Savage decided to send the Papuans north along the coast to keep pressuring the enemy's retreat. By the 4th, Taylor Force had taken a new position at Napier, and they were now under the direct command of Moton's 17th Brigade. Back over at the beaches at Nassau Bay, a total of 1,477 troops had been landed, thus securing the beachhead. Dexter's company marched over to Guadalcanal, taking a coastal route, getting themselves ready for a future assault against Mubo slated for July the 7th. McKechnie believed the loss of some of his landing craft had greatly delayed the entire operation, perhaps for three weeks. He did not think he would be able to move artillery or large quantities of supplies further inland at this time. He also did not think it was tactically sound to leave his base, as the Japanese proved to be quite a nuisance in the area. But orders from the top were demanding an artillery road be built, while his troops at the assembly area were probably running out of rations in a day or two, and he had no native carriers on hand. In his words, To be very frank, we have been in a very precarious position, down for several days, and my sending the rifle troops inland was contrary to my own best judgment. Troops had gone inland stripped to the bone, without heavy weapons or mortar, and machine gun ammunition. Therefore, these troops who are up there now are in no position to embark upon an offensive mission until we are able to get food, ammunition, and additional weapons up to them. In response to the situation, on July the 6th, Moton ordered 1,000 rations and 100 boy loads of ammunition, and God, you have to love the Australians using a term like boy loads. Anyways, they were going to be dropped over in Napier. Moving over to the Solomons, Admiral Halsey had successfully occupied Rendova, Segi Point, Viru Harbor, and Wickham Anchorage, forcing the smaller number of Japanese to withdraw to their main base at Munda. Admiral Kuzaka tossed a series of airstrikes against the invaders, suffering horrible losses, whereupon he was forced to request General Imamura reinforce him with the 21st Air Flotilla at Seipan, and also from the 6th Air Division. For the Battle of Munda, Admiral Halsey had assembled the largest air force ever assembled in the Solomon Islands campaign. It was a force that was needed, as the Japanese in Rabaul tossed every bomber that was available to try and thwart the U.S. amphibious invasion. The June air battles had greatly depleted the Japanese air power, but they were not done. On July the 1st, the Japanese hit Kahili using six vowels and 34 zeros. They were trying to knock out the 3rd Battalion, 103rd Infantry, who were unloading at Poco Plantation on the west coast of Rendova. However, they were met by 20 P-40s and F-4F Wildcats that ripped them to pieces, taking down three vowels and five zeros while only losing five P-40s in the process. 
Although the Allies were scoring massively high success rates against the Japanese, in ratios by this point reaching something like 7 to 1, they were still unable to sustain round-the-clock 32 fighters for their cap. To do this required a total of 96 operational aircraft, and after 10 days of fighting in the skies over New Georgia, the pilots were also becoming increasingly exhausted. Colonel Merrill Twinning requested more P-38 Lightnings, the aircraft that had become the most comfortable fighter, to those in the South Pacific by this point. But Haps Arnold over in Washington was heavily committing forces for General Patton and Montgomery's invasion of Sicily at this time, so they had to deny the request. As Arnold stated back, Every trained unit must be thrown against the German until he is beaten. Regardless, with Rendova secured, General Hester was landing the bulk of his forces for the final push against Munda. The unloading process had been heavily hampered by poor planning and a failure to allocate adequate personnel for beach control and unloading duties. To clear the new beachhead and distribute the combat stores, infantrymen were detailed to carry out the work. When transports carrying the next echelon arrived, many of the boats grounded offshore and they had to be unloaded manually by troops wadding ashore. On July the 2nd, Admiral Kuzaka, coordinating with General Itahana, formed a combined strike led by Major Endo Misao, consisting of 18 KI-21 bombers, 23 KI-43 and KI-61s, with 29 Zeros as escort. Unfortunately for the Allies, Admiral Mitcher had recalled the Randova patrol due to some bad weather, so a total of 18 KI-21 bombers came to the scene completely unmolested and they hit the congested area around the harbor. The airstrike caused 200 or so casualties, mostly upon the 2nd Battalion, 172nd, the 24th Seabees, and the 9th Defense Battalion, and some staff officers of various headquarters. The strike also knocked out a lot of equipment and supplies. With the failure of the June air battles to hold back the Allied invasion, Admiral Koga turned to the Navy for the task of providing new supplies to the defenders at Munda Point. The Tokyo Express was back in business. A convoy of 10 destroyers was sent to New Georgia, led by Rear Admiral Teru Yakiyama aboard his flagship, the Nizuki. His force was ordered to attack Rendova, and he had with him the old cruisers Yubari, Yunagi, Mikazuki, who would operate south of the treasuries as a diversion, while Nizuki, Amagari, Hatsuyuki, Nagazuki, Satsuki, Mikazuki, and Mochizuki would hit the Allied shipping and shell the harbor. The Japanese destroyers were spotted right away, but bad weather prevented three American strike forces consisting of PBYs and B-25s from hitting the incoming enemy. In the meantime, the Akiyama closed in on the southern tip of Rendova. She circled the island and opened fire on a point due west of the harbor. Overall, the bombardment was quite ineffective, but some Allied PT boats rushed in to attack her, which caused a wild 10-minute mini-battle seeing two of them running aground. Over on the ground, General Hester ordered the 1st Battalion, 172nd Regiment, and A Company of the 169th Regiment, now designated Southern Landing Group, to land at Zazana Beach. Led by General Wing, on the afternoon of the 2nd, they made a crossing over Blanche Channel, using 16 landing crafts. With the support of Brigadier General Harold Barker's artillery, they successfully formed a defensive perimeter. Now all of these Japanese air and naval attacks were worrying Admiral Halsey. He expected the Japanese to launch a major counter-landing with substantial forces, perhaps on the 3rd. Therefore, he ordered Admiral Ainsworth to lay in wait off the west coast of Rendova for the enemy. However, July the 3rd would not bring an enemy. 
This was because General Imamura and Admiral Kuzaka agreed with the lack of air naval forces on hand. At this time, they could not perform such a feat. This came to the absolute disgust of General Sasaki, who would be assuming command over the defenses of Munda on the 2nd. Sasaki was so adamant about landing reinforcements at around midnight on July the 3rd, he proposed violating orders to simply make a counter-landing using the 13th Regiment's and Oda's barges. Sasaki had this crazy idea to simply bring the vessels in and mix them all with the American landing craft who were making round trips to the mainland through the Honiovasa Passage. He thought even if half of his forces perished, the attack would be worth it. Oda objected to this on the grounds the barges would be needed for other transport scheduled for July the 4th and the 5th, and apparently this made Sasaki visibly upset, who adjourned the meeting and he left the room. Oda pushed Sasaki to write his plans down and submit them to Rabal, which he did, and Rabal squashed them immediately. On July the 3rd, the Japanese performed an unsuccessful fighter sweep over Rendova, and the next day reconnaissance reported the island was secured by the Americans, who were heavily reinforcing it with anti-aircraft guns and radar. They also reported landings on Zazana, and it looked like Rice Anchorage would be next, thus cutting off Japanese reinforcements from coming down the Munda Trail from Barocco. Imamura and Kuzaka had to wait for an accumulation of forces to bring reinforcements to New Georgia. They had no intention of losing it like Guadalcanal. 4,000 soldiers of the 13th and 45th regiments were earmarked for the departure. Kuzaka ordered Itahana to launch another combined strike, this time aimed at Roviana Island. However, the Japanese were intercepted by 32 F-4F Wildcats, causing the loss of 6 Ki-21s, three KI-43s, and a zero without a single loss for the Americans. This would be the fateful end of the joint air operations as Itahana needed to take his forces to help the Salamao area. Luckily for Kuzaka, he received reinforcements in the form of the 201st Kokutai from the 25th Flotilla, which would allow him to gradually rebuild his air strength by mid-July. Meanwhile, Admiral Turner had assigned seven destroyer transports, two fast minesweepers, and four destroyers to carry the 1st Raider Battalion, the 3rd Battalion 145th Infantry Regiment, and the 3rd Battalion 148th Infantry Regiment of the 37th Division, led by Colonel Liver's Edge, into the Kule Gulf. Their escort cover was Ainsworth's Task Group 36.1, consisting of the cruisers Honolulu, St. Louis, Helena, and destroyers Nicholas, O'Bannon, Strong, and Chevalier. They were also tasked with bombarding Villa and Barocco. On July the 4th, Ainsworth led the group up the slot while Rear Admiral Toto Akiyama's Tokyo Express were on their way to Villa, carrying 1,300 troops of the 13th Regiment. At around midnight, Ainsworth entered Kule Gulf, carefully avoiding the minefield laid back in May. His force proceeded to shell Villa, but they failed to detect the Japanese who were just heading over to the south. The Japanese detected the Americans at 12.15 thanks to their brand new radar system, the Aishikitugo radar, which was outfitted on the Nizuki. The IGN were eager to test out the new radar, so they fastened it to the flagship of Destroyer Squadron No. 3. And it is, as they say, how the turntables. The radar indicated they were heavily outnumbered, so Akiyama decided to abort the mission. But before doing so, he ordered 14 torpedoes to be launched at a range of about 10 miles. And as usual, the Type 93 Longlands torpedo remained the best weapon of its kind in the Pacific Theater, and one would hit Destroyer Strong at 1243, practically cutting her in two. I can't stress it enough. 
What an immense advantage Japan had over the Americans in terms of torpedo power during the first half of the war. And hell, if any of you play World of Warships, well, you know the Japanese DD is base as hell. When the torpedo hit, the Japanese were already heading back up the slot, and Ainsworth thought he was being attacked by IGN submarines. Thus, while Liver's Edge's men were landing on the south side of the Pondokono River, Ainsworth dispatched destroyers O'Bannon and Chevalier to rescue the survivors of the Strong. The Strong was settling fast off the Inugai Inlet. When Chevalier and O'Bannon came to this scene, picking up survivors, a gun duel emerged between them and the shore batteries on Inugai Inlet. By 1.22 a.m., Chevalier had 239 men come aboard before her commander said it was time to go. His ship was getting battered by the batteries, and he unfortunately was forced to ram the strong to keep it from capsizing, which ripped a 10-foot gash in Chevalier's bow. A near miss from one of Inugai's guns had opened her seams aft, and another shell knocked out her number 3 gun mount. When Chevalier was pulling away from Strong, breaking her in two in the process, three of Strong's depth charges also went off under Chevalier, lifting the entire boat out of the water and causing her to flood in the forward sections. Talk about some bad luck. Over in Rice Anchorage, despite the terribly stormy weather and some gunfire from the Inugai Inlet, Turner ordered the transport group to clear the gulf by 7 a.m. so they could quickly unload their cargo. 300 men of the 148th Regiment landed further north at Kobu Kobu Inlet because of the terrible weather. It would take them until July the 7th to meet up with the main body as a result. Though the USS Strong had been sunk, the Tokyo Express failed her run. Thus, Akiyama elected to bring the bulk of his shipment to Villa the following night. But this time, he brought 10 destroyers. The Nizuki, Suzukaze, Tanikaze, Mochizuki, Mikazuki, Hamakaze, Amagiri, Hakujuki, Nagazuki, and the Sazuki. Admiral Halsey got advance word of this, and he ordered Ainsworth to return to the Kule Gulf to wait for the Japanese to show up again. Halsey also reinforced him this time with destroyers Jenkins and Radford. Ainsworth went into this with a simple but ultimately flawed plan. He completely overestimated the capabilities of radar-guided 6-inch guns against fast-moving targets. On top of that, he seemed to be totally ignorant of the IGN's Type 93 long-lance torpedoes capabilities. His plan was to wait passively until radar detected the enemy, then he would toss his cruisers at the enemy using their 6-inch guns, hoping to fire from around 8,000 yards or so. He believed that was the effective range of the Japanese torpedoes. Why he believed this, I do not know. For his destroyers, they would launch torpedoes at the enemy. Akiyama's Tokyo Express departed Buen after sundown, dividing into a covering force of three destroyers in the front and a main bulk behind them. Around midnight on July the 6th, Aimworth's force was just northwest off New Georgia, entering the mouth of the Cooley Gulf. The Japanese were also arriving to the Cooley Gulf, whereupon they detached the first transport unit to land 1,600 troops. By 1.06 a.m., Nizuki's radar detected Ainsworth's force, but this time Akiyama was prepared for a fight. Akiyama detached his second transport unit at 1.43 a.m., and seven minutes later, American radar began picking up the Japanese. Ainsworth took his force in closer until the enemy was 7,000 yards away. Then at 1.56 a.m., at a range of about 6,800 yards, the American cruisers began to open up fire. 
Akiyama quickly recalled the second transport unit before he engaged the enemy. Unluckily for Akiyama, the Americans concentrated their fire upon the Nizuki, which was pulverized quickly. Six-inch shell fire turned her into a burning wreck before she sunk, taking with her Rear Admiral Akiyama's life alongside 300 sailors. Within just 20 minutes, the Americans would fire 612 shells, six of which smashed the Nizuki. Despite the loss of their commander, the well-drilled torpedo crews pulled off a salvo of 16 torpedoes at the American gun flashes. Ainsworth, again completely ignorant of the long lance range, could do little to avoid it. The light cruiser USS Helena was the first to be struck. Her bow was blown off virtually up to her number two turret, nearly cracking her in two as she sank, taking with her 190 of her 1,177 crew with her. St. Louis was hit by a torpedo that fortunately did not detonate, and another nearly missed the Honolulu. The Japanese fled as fast as they could for Bun, as Ainsworth directed his two remaining cruisers to shell the second transport unit. Of the four destroyers in this group, Amagiri escaped with minor damage, while Hatsuyuki was hit by two six-inch shells, but luckily for her they were duds and she limped away. Nagasuyuki was hit by a single six-inch shell to her rear ship, which would force her to run aground near Bambari Harbor. The next morning, she would be destroyed by American aircraft. At 3.30 a.m., Ainsworth ordered his forces to return to Tulagi, as he dispatched the Radford and the O'Bannon to pick up survivors while Nicholas chased the fleeing Japanese. The Japanese dispatched Amagiri to pick up their survivors, and she would be intercepted by Nicholas, taking four hits before she made a retreat. While all of this was going on, the first transport unit completed unloading its 1,600 troops and bolted through the Blackett Strait and Kule Gulf. The Japanese had managed to land their reinforcements and they sunk the USS Strong and Helena, so they considered it a tactical victory. Though the loss of the Nizuki and her commander was terrible. The battle for New Georgia was nowhere near done. I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube. Over there, I just released a tier list on Generals of the Pacific War, which many of you seem to like because you told me you came from this podcast. If you want to see more content like that, please go over to my YouTube channel and tell me what you want to see. Also, just a friendly reminder, I now myself have a Patreon account, which can be found at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War channel. Over there, you can get early access to all my content and exclusive podcasts. And you can check it out right now with a 7-day free trial. The landings and early offensives were well on their way on New Georgia, and the drive upon Ley was coming close. The Battle of Kule Gulf gave the Americans a bloody nose, and now the Japanese had more forces at their disposal to try and dislodge the Americans from New Georgia. Would it become another Guadalcanal? Time will tell. <laughs>